Hi, I'm Bob Yarrow. I'm president of Regional Plan Association here in New York, and I've got the pleasure of speaking with author Tony Hiss about his new book, In Motion, The, Tra the Experience of Travel, which is now available in paperback from, uh, from APA Planners Press. And Tony, you and I have known each other now, I guess, for uh, uh, at least 25 years, and, and I got to know you when, when you were uh, doing the research uh, for the, the book that became The Experience of Place, which is you know, one of these books that's high up on my pantheon of you know, great books in the planner's library. And, and, and you taught me and others you know, how to experience ordinary places and special places in new ways and to see things that we'd never seen before and to gain insights that we'd never seen before. And this new book is really uh, a, a fresh look at how the experience of travel can create the same kinds of experiences and the same kinds of insights. And so you know, it's very exciting to see it uh, in paperback and now, and now being promoted to the planning profession and design community. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, so we really want to explore in this conversation today, you know, how some of these uh, insights can be especially helpful to planners in, in, uh, in serving their communities or their agencies or the people that they serve in, in new and, and, and better ways. And Tony, can you just start by, by exploring this idea of deep travel that is really at the heart of, of the book, this, this heightened state of awareness that, that, uh, that some of us and perhaps all of us can gain when we're traveling. So what does it really mean and how do we, how do we prepare people to experience deep travel? Sure, Bob. Um, it's a state of mind and a way of thinking that's actually built into all of us and that we're all familiar with, but I don't think I've ever put a name to. And it's something that seems to happen naturally, spontaneously, when we're in a new place, uh, when we open ourselves up wide to all the sights and sounds and smells um, on every channel and just are drinking in information at a tremendous clip, um, both because we want to uh, and sometimes because we have to because we don't know quite yet where we are or how to find our way around, uh, what to look for, what to avoid. But even though it's something that happens to us periodically and I think also seems to catch us from time to time throughout the day, we haven't yet uh, realized that this extra way of looking at things is a fundamental part of every human being's equipment, that we come into the world with this ready-made, and yet it's the one part of our uh, thinking apparatus that uh, doesn't get emphasized in school. We don't get trained to do it. Uh, we don't get uh, instruction. We don't have courses in it. Um, and it does so much to enlarge our sense of where we are, to what, what I sometimes call give us a larger sense of the here we're part of, uh, see, seeing patterns and connections that uh, ordinarily escape us, and also to see a much longer connection of a place over time, so that as planners begin to think about managing the future of a place, it gives them a much broader sense of the present and of the past that's led up to the present. Um, it's something we can decide to do at pretty much any moment. Um, I have a friend who introduced me to the idea of what he called the Warsaw induction, 
for deep travel. We were sitting in a coffee shop in Manhattan, and he said, well, what if we weren't here, but we were in Warsaw or some city we'd never been to? Suddenly, we'd have to look around and pay attention to everything because we wouldn't know what might be important at the next moment. You know, why are these big bowls of pickles on the table? Why are people gathering in midday in such excited fashion and having such animated conversations? Everything would be of immense interest and importance to us. Uh, another way of getting into deep travel sometimes is just to pause and look around and think uh, uh, how wonderful that we have an opportunity to be here wherever we are uh, and remember the thankfulness uh, of this opportunity. Another way is to just decide uh, what if we're on a treasure hunt and something amazing will be revealed to us. We don't know what in the next three minutes, but we have to keep our eyes and ears open to it. And suddenly, uh, the scope of what we're paying attention to changes dramatically. Um, I think this is a skill that planners could use uh, in a remarkable way because it's, I'm beginning, as I go around the country, thanks to the APA, uh, to talk to some of the statewide APA conventions to conduct some mobile workshops in the various convention communities and we're going to go out into the field and just um, open ourselves up uh, collectively to deep travel and pretend we're first-time visitors to the place, and a hundred questions will suddenly pop into our minds. Uh, ideas, possibilities, answers. Take notes, take pictures, point out to each other what we're seeing and listening to, what is it that holds our attention? What is it that pulls us towards something? What is it that tugs at us to linger in a place? What is it that pushes us away and hurries us along? Are there long views out into the distance that make us feel connected to a larger community beyond the immediate neighborhood? How far away could we even hear what's happening? Are there reminders of what the place was like before people began to settle in it? It's a, it's a new way of just... Uh, listing and investigating the strengths of a place and and also what might be missing and add it back in you know tony i'm i'm uh, listening to you and and uh thinking you know back to my you know early planning education and i remember you know reading uh you know one of my gurus was benton mckay who was one of the great pioneers of the planning profession and and Benton wrote that in developing plans for cities and regions that the planner's role was not actually to create a plan, but rather to reveal the, the, the plan that was and the potential that was inherent in every place. And to do that, you have to experience the place the way, the way that you're describing, to see that potential and to see those opportunities. And so in many ways, what you're talking about is I'm thinking that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we teach music appreciation and art appreciation to open our eyes to the, to the world of music and art. But what you're really talking about is, is, is the ability to experience places, to experience uh, uh, mobility systems in a, in, a, in, a, in a brand new way, in a way that, 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 that opens up, you know, that, that makes possible this business of revealing the, the potential and the opportunity in every community, every region. Uh, so, so you know, and that in that sense, this strikes me that what you're what you're teaching us here is pretty fundamental to the to the success of of of, of planners and and pe people who are working in our field. Well, it's odd that um, we get a we hear a lot when we're growing up about 
two ways of using our mind, daydreaming and closely focused attention. And um, it, when you look at it, it seems almost as if our entire schooling system is telling us to avoid the first and to get better at the second. Mm -hmm. But both of those ways of interacting with the world sort of keep the world at a distance. Either when we're daydreaming, we're just alone with our thoughts, and when we're focusing on a problem that needs solution, we sort of keep the world at bay. Whereas this is opening ourselves back up to our surroundings. Uh, and it can happen when we're moving around, but it can also happen when we're just sitting tight. Uh, and that's why I thought it, it might be helpful to give it a name and to begin to uh, mainstream it as something that has its own strengths and values uh, and, and adds into what we can do. And you and I first got to know each other when you were at the Center for Rural Massachusetts up in the upper Connecticut River Valley yep. and doing what I thought of, well, what I would now call a deep travel reimagination of that place. Yep. It was beginning to get subjected to growth pressures and the beautiful riverside long meadows and fields that were so prized for the last three or four hundred years were beginning to be nibbled away at by suburban development. And you came up with the solution of not stopping growth but tucking some of the new housing into the edges of the woods so that the what people admired and adored would stay part of that reality into the future. Uh, and, and to do that, we had to kind of get under the skin of the place. And, and some of it was very, very simple. I mean, it was just simply going, it was talking, you know, experiencing life in the valley itself. And, and uh, I mean, I think everybody who lives there knows that they're in a special place, but in a way you had to o open their eyes to, to what it was that, that, that real, the, the underpinnings of, of the character of that region. And we had to try to you know, see it in a in a fresh way, and you know, in the end, everybody responded. Well, of course, that's intuitively obvious the solutions, but it hadn't been thought of before. And uh, you know, and it was interesting because it built uh, those insights, then built um, a political base for a set of uh, plans and and actions over the last uh, 35 years that have that have allowed those. Those ideas to be implemented in the valley, and of course, the valley still is, you know, has retained virtually all of its special character. The river has been protected, the ag land in the valley has been protected, the vistas that everybody prized—that's uh, so much a part of the quality of life of the place—you know—have been have been protected, and you know, at, at enormous expense in some ways. You know, there have been a lot of land acquisition and purchase development rights and so forth, but but a lot of it was simply each individual community adopting adopting the. Uh, a version of the model uh, 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 plans and regulations that we that we developed, but but it but it was built on those fundamental you know insights and um, I, you know the, to me the thing that's so striking about about the book and and about about the insights in the book is that you allow so that Connecticut Valley I think everybody you know, says okay it's a special place and so forth although I think you know the planner's job is to is to is to, is to help the citizens of every community and every region understand that their own place is special and that there are attributes and characteristics of the place that are that are unique that are that are uh, that are that underpin the quality of life and the economy of the place and that they need to be managed preserved enhanced protected you know all the rest and replicated in some ways as new development comes in that they need new development needs to be built around those principles and what you've laid out here tony is a it's, it strikes me as is a way of understanding and and uh, 
and that's quantifying is not the right word, but 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 getting down on paper what those attributes are and what those values are. And it, and and it first came to me when you know in your in one of the opening sections of the book you described the experience of walking down the street in Greenwich Village that you've been walking down, you know, for 60 years and and seeing it in a new way. And and that's really what all of us need to do. We all work in places, and we all, in many cases, I guess, have become inured to, you know, to into the to the the realities of these places. They become everyday and commonplace, and we are desensitized. And then what you're what you are writing about here is is recreating the ability to 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 see the, those attributes in a fresh uh, way. And, uh, and and then for planners, the challenge then is to build plans and land use regulations and programs around those attributes. But you first have to be able to see them, and that's really what the book is about. Well, one thing we can remember, even on a most ordinary walk that we have habituated ourselves to, is that it's always slightly different. It's never the same thing twice. The weather is different. The time of day is different. The slant of the sun is different. The people who are there or not there are different. So there's always something new to see, even if it's something silly. Um, yesterday we went up to the Bronx Zoo uh, and on the subway going up, someone had naughtily but creatively taken a sign that you often see in the subway when they've painted a bench, the wet paint sign, mm -hmm. and rearranged it so that it said, ain't wet. <laughs> Uh, it hardly registered on the mind unless you were just sort of open to it. Right. And there's, uh, making uh, daily travel, I think a lot of our, the way we've habituated ourselves to not thinking about what we're moving through is that a lot of it we have made so that it isn't much fun to move through. And we have to recapture uh, daily travel for deep travel purposes. There's an, an express bus that takes you most of the way up to the Bronx Zoo, um, run by the Metropolitan Transportation Authority of the area. And in many ways, it's a wonderful bus. It's uh, comfortable. It's quiet. It's got padded, reclinable, plush seats. But we noticed that of the uh, 55 seats, only two of them are deep travel seats, and those are the two that are right up front next to the driver, uh, because they're the ones that get a box seat view out the beautiful big uh, front window that otherwise only the driver gets to see. Mm. Um, so we're penalizing 53 out of 55 passengers on that bus. And you pay a premium fare for the comfort, but you should be able to at least get the deep travel experience at the same time. And a lot of what we do, as I've realized, as... Um, travel novelties become travel norms, too often the uh, deep travel component of something new is uh, the first casualty. It's what uh, on airplanes we all dread the middle seat uh, that's neither looking out the window or next to an aisle. You're just stuck there. That is totally devoid of any kind of deep travel enrichment. Uh, you can't make a getaway and you can't to look out the window and see something you've never seen before. Um, a wonderful man named Bill Stumpf, uh, an industrial designer who's uh, remembered primarily as the co-designer of the Aeron chair, 
the great ergonomic office chair that swept the country by a storm, uh, put his mind to it and sketched on a napkin how we could redesign airplanes, putting the fuel and the, and the baggage in the middle and putting the passengers on the outside, and then adding on the kind of bubbles they used to have on World War II uh, bombers so that every passenger would have this glorious view of the sky. We've, uh, partly for historical reasons, we've sort of suppressed the feeling of doing something special when you get up in a plane. I say for historical reasons because in the early days of air travel, the planes were pretty rickety, and it was the early planes were deliberately designed to distract you from the sensation of having left the ground so that you wouldn't feel insecure. Now, planes are incredibly safe, uh, but we're still cutting people off from something that only the birds can do with us, and that's look at the world from above. Um, so we could solve the, the middle seat syndrome, and, and it's parallel on the ground is what I think of as the middle lane syndrome in a highway. We start with highways that have one lane in each direction. Then we invented the beautiful parkways, uh, divided parkways with uh, two lanes going in one direction and two lanes in another with a median strip in the middle, a landscaped median strip. Uh, everyone got to experience the countryside they were driving through. But as soon as you add a middle lane, then... The people in that middle lane are only experiencing cars. They're experiencing cars to the left of them and cars to the right of them. And of course, once you add one middle lane, you're tempted to add more. And now we have expressways that are 15 lanes wide, uh, where the only experience you have is of traffic. Uh, and that's one of the reasons people are so dissatisfied with their commutes, uh, that and the congestion. So it's time to begin to think of reclaiming daily life for deep travel, making sure that in-between times are as valuable to our lives as the times on either end, the destination uh, points. Uh, and that, I think, is a way we can really begin to change communities of the future so that all aspects of those communities, both the places where we stay put and have face-to-face -face meetings with other people are uh, enriched by this kind of deep travel surrounding, but also the time in between, so that nothing gets wasted. Uh, it's all something there to uh, make every part of the day as important as any other part of the day. You know, Tony, it's you know it's interesting because which I mean, it seems to me that some of the most important insights in the book are, will, could be gained by by uh, transportation planners or people who are dealing with travel corridors, highways, railroads, you know, airports, that sort of thing. And it's really about about putting the the kind of joy you know of travel back into travel. And and you know the 19th century railroad railroad designers often you know often thought about how to create the most scenic vistas because that was a big part of what they were selling to their their customers and you mentioned the parkways here in new york and other parts of the country and you know frederick longstead's one of his gifts was was this idea of creating parkways that would turn his parks into networks of green spaces and green travel corridors that would 
that would shape whole metropolitan regions. And, you know, I travel from time to time in the, on the Merritt Parkway in, in Connecticut where we've, we've put a lot of money into landscaping, and, of course, the bridges are all unique and special and so forth. And it's, a, it's, a, it's still a rewarding experience to travel on the Merritt Parkway as opposed to getting on I-95. And the trip is the same, takes the same time, but I very often go out of my way to take a few minutes to get up to the Merritt to get where I'm going in, in Connecticut. And um, we've just forgotten how to do that. And transportation, transportation planners have wrung all that stuff out of the programs and out of the budgets for transportation corridors of all kinds. And we've, we, you know, I, I write in the introduction that we treat, you know, passengers like FedEx packages. You know, it's just the most utilitarian, you know, the, the most direct route, you know, is to via Memphis and so forth. And how do we get people back and forth, you know, at the at least cost and the most efficient way? And you know, we've taken all the joy of travel out, and that's why, you know, with increasing travel times, many Americans are dissatisfied with that aspect of their lives, and they find it to be terribly frustrating. And we've tried to make up for it with, with you know, leather seats and air conditioning and every other kind of comfort in the in automobiles. But the fact is that you're still looking out the window at, at, a, at a, in most cases, at a drosscape, you know, just the worst of cities and the worst of regions instead of the best. And... So, you know, helping transportation planners understand that it might be the last 1% of the budget, and some of it doesn't cost anything at all. It's simply taking advantage of existing vistas and natural natural features. It may be a landscaping budget or putting some elegance into bridges and abutments and so forth that, that uh, instead of the, just the lowest common denominator, you know, or, or, you know, building these noise barriers that are that are devoid of interest and so forth helps with the noise, but it certainly doesn't add to the experience for the people using the highway. And and so, you know, it seems to me that one of the great uh, opportunities here, and the book explores this, is the, is for transport for people who are designing transportation corridors and transportation systems to to uh, understand deep travel, to understand the the potential to make travel a much more rewarding and positive part of people's lives. Yes, and I think it's desperately needed. Um, it's a shame that we've trained ourselves just to be so, uh, to put up with something that pains all of us and, and, and diminishes all of us. And I think that a lot of uh, what you see now, of people walking around with uh, texting uh, with the iPads and iPhones is just a mute protest against the impoverishment of the surroundings. Uh, they've got to have something decent to do uh, because they're not being offered enough by what they're moving through. Uh, so it's something we need to need to get back to. Um, as you say, it's not that hard to get back to it. Uh, we just have to remember we're people uh, and that this is part of uh, completing ourselves as people is to have uh, these uh, constantly enriching experiences available to us. Uh, it's what it's what our minds uh, two million years ago began to reach out for. That's why this is built into us in the first place. It's part of our basic equipment. So when it's starved, something in us feels unfulfilled. But I also, Bob, in staying in touch with you over the years, have admired the way you've, uh, I think, on a very deep level, incorporated uh, deep travel analysis into what you do. Um, 
when we, you and I, I had the privilege of working with you on the third regional plan for the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut metropolitan area back in the 90s. And at that point, uh, your, your insight was that despite 400 years of growth, the region still had at its outer edges these great, vast, uh, intact landscapes that could be a part of the future of the region. The highland mountain regions up to the north and the uh, pine barrens in southern New Jersey and pinelands in eastern Long Island. And then you came up with the plans and policies that kept them there and, and now make them a permanent part. Again, it was bringing special quality into awareness and then making sure that it's part of the future of a place, that it gets a permanent standing. Again, just looking at something that was always there, but not seen, seeing it and then valuing it and then finding a way to do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting because we, <clears throat> the Pine Barrens in New Jersey and Long Island, they were these these were seen as, you know, as, as scrub as, wasteland, scrub wasteland, and at worst, you know, something to be replaced with something else. And you know, we've all seen this with wetlands, for example, where they were seen as a you know, as a place to be, uh, as wastelands, places to be filled with with uh, with trash or you know, or more uh, dredge spoils or that sort of thing. And you know, and so just you know, seeing it in a new way. And then you know, as I, I was thinking this morning, as I put the put the blueberries on my breakfast cereal, and those are you know, they all they all you know, probably half of the blueberries in America come from the Jersey pinelands, and, and certainly the best tasting blueberries. They're the best, and you know they're they're there because there's a million acre protected reserve in New Jersey that you know over I guess 40, 40 years now has been nurtured by by uh, you know a couple of generations of planners to you know and citizens and you know we see now that property values the, the criticism at the time was that it was that by creating the Pinelands Commission it was going to reduce property values well it turns out that property values are higher inside the protected areas than outside because they're protected and the the attributes, the the beauty of the place, and so forth, is you're assured as a property owner that 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 that, that open space next door is going to remain that way, and uh, so yeah, so I, and and I've always thought that this is fundamental to the success of big cities like New York. You know, these are big, urbanized, and in many ways paved over places, but 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 creating those opportunities for experience of countryside and wilderness you know and, and you know if not in people's daily lives at least in very close proximity so that so that you know on a weekend you can get out to the countryside and be on the beach or on the water or in the lakes or the mountains or on the trail and and uh, and experience the things that people who live a thousand miles from a big city can experience so that's one of the great attributes of cities like new york and chicago and san francisco and you know we need to so at any rate, yeah, I think, and, and so, you know, so step one was seeing the opportunity in those places and the potential and and the value in these places that hadn't been seen before. And, and well, I, I know that uh, out west people think of themselves as having urban people out west, two paychecks, money they get for their job and the opportunity they have on the weekends to go out and experience spectacular landscapes. and. Your insight was that this could happen even in the older cities of the East, and I know in the in the, your introduction you talk about how the ancient Greeks, looking at the sky, instead of seeing a jumble of stars, were able to see patterns and picked out the constellations that we now take for granted. And you've carried that forward in your most recent work, 
in terms of looking at what many people see as the jumble of urbanization uh, extending across the country and in fact seeing that it's organizing itself into a, a pattern of 11 mega regions uh, that collect various cities and suburbs together. And that here in the northeast, the, the northeastern mega region that stretches from Washington to Boston is can, with the help of high-speed rail and a few other things, begin to emerge as a single unit with its own unique sense of place. Um, and this is an extraordinarily useful uh, contribution to the 21st century as we begin to reorganize ourselves and expect uh, millions more people to be here over the next 40 or 50 years. And, and as, I, uh, point, uh, as I pointed out in the introduction, you know, we had to be in London looking out into out of Peter, Sir Peter Hall's 17th century townhouse into a lovely, lovely landscape garden, you know, on one side of the room and then the big maps of the Northeast and the and the, of the United States. But but we had to go to London and be in this special place to, to, to see that opportunity back in America, 3,000 miles away. Interesting. And... Uh, I know now you're working on sort of the rural complement to that, too, uh, that even in the urbanized northeast, there is an extraordinary amount of open land, some of it hidden from view by roads. Uh, but I've started looking at that aspect of it, uh, perhaps for the next book, and realized that all across New England, people are, again, as in the Connecticut River Valley uh, a generation ago, banding together to protect uh, the great forests that have regrown in New England uh, since the farms were abandoned in the 1850s. Uh, New England is now being called a second chance landscape. It was deforested in the 19th century, but has grown back again. So that something like 72% of it is now wooded uh, landscape. And groups called Regional Conservation Partnerships are banding together across town lines, uh, putting aside their ancient animosities and suspicions of each other to protect larger swaths because they realize that the only way to have an impact would be to at least double the pace of conservation. Uh, and I've also met up with uh, an extraordinary conservation biologist who has realized that... Um, in taking a, almost a deep travel look at conservation, that within each uh, landscape province or landscape, you know, different type of landscape, there are certain areas that have their own internal variations. They have more slopes, they have uh, more uh, dry and wet areas, and that these characteristics confer uh, protection and strength on whatever the species are that are native to that area. And that they, these places can become what he calls resilient strongholds that hold out against the kinds of changes that climate change is driving, pushing species around from place to place. So there's a lot of good news once you start to look around for it. Uh, well, it's interesting. And again, this comes back to Tony just looking, seeing the unique potential in places and in, and in uh, voyages. And, uh, uh, and you've, what you've shown us is that you can have these extraordinary experiences on your own street your own street corner, your own neighborhood, you know, or, you know, and travel around the world. But that, but that the, the 
beauty of a place, the unique character of a place, and this, and again, this, this, the, the key thing for planners is is being able to see the opportunity and the potential in every place, and seeing the understanding, being able to see the intrinsic values of a place that make it special and worthwhile, and so forth. Now, uh, that, that the, those are the kinds of insights that the book um, uh, op- opened my eyes to, and uh, and and we all hope will open the, the eyes of of the of the thousands of readers that uh, that, that we expect to uh, to see over the next uh, you know coming years. One last one last thought is that the experience of place you know is now what it's what 25 years old I think it's it's still 20. in print and and uh, 20 years but it's been still in print and uh, and it's something that's that's still talked about. So I I would expect that that that. Um, that the experience of travel is going to have the same kind of uh, life. It's something that's going to have a lasting contribution to the, you know, to planners and to others who who care about uh, the places that we live in and the places that we work for. Well, thank you. Any other thoughts, Tony? I'm thrilled that that uh, APA Planners Press has brought it out in paperback as a way of making it available to a much larger group of people. And I'm thrilled that in your uh, wonderful introduction to the book, which is brand new, uh, you actually called deep travel the best friend that anyone in the design community could have. Planners, landscape architects, architects, engineers, everyone who helps change the face of the earth. This is what I'd like people to be able to think, realize is there inside themselves all the time and can easily be switched into and on at practically any moment. Um, because we all, as the world goes through the tumultuous 21st century changes, need more than ever communities that really take uh, take our needs and uh, potentials in, into consideration. Um, so thank you very much, Bob, for that and for the privilege of this conversation this morning. Yeah. Well, great. Hey, uh, thanks, Tony. Again, uh, Tony's uh, book, uh, In Motion, is available now in paperback from APAPlanningBooks.com. Hope uh, Planners folks Press. Who, Planners yes. Press. And uh, hope, hope folks who uh, listen in on this uh, podcast uh, go out and buy it. And, Tony, best of luck, and we're looking forward to the next book. Thanks so much.